Welcome to this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. And in today's episode, we talk about power with one of the world's leading experts, Jeffrey Pfeffer, who calls power both a dirty secret and the secret to success. He's the author or co-author of 16 books, including five on power, which he has conducted research on for 30 years. Jeffrey Pfeffer has been a professor in Stanford's Graduate School of Business since 1979 and has been a visiting professor at places all over the world, Harvard Business School, Singapore Management University, London School of Business, Copenhagen Business School, and IESE Barcelona. He's a recipient of an honorary doctorate from Tilburg University in the Netherlands and is the Richard D. Irwin uh, Award recipient. He's also in Thinker's 50 Hall of Fame and has been listed by HR Magazine as one of the most influential HR international thinkers. His most recent book is Seven Rules of Power, which is subtitled Surprising But True, Advice on How to Get Things Done and Advance Your Career. And we welcome Jeffrey Pfeffer. It's a it's a great it's great to see you again. Um, it I, I've always enjoyed my interviews with you. You are one of the best interviewers in the history of the world. And by the way, I've not been paid to say that. Well, thank you for that. Kind of you, and most appreciated. Um, I, I hope you'll appreciate the fact that um, I want to sort of flesh out a lot of the work that you've done and research you've done, relying a lot on the social sciences. And I think it'll be valuable for people who want to advance in career and want to find out what kind of skills they can to. Well, get more salary and all those kinds of things, which are really important in the odyssey of uh, just any kind of career. But I want to talk about what you call the darker side first, and there's a reason for that. I'm a kind of amateur semanticist, and I'm interested in why so many people have bad associations with power. I mean, you say it's just a tool, and for the most part, I agree with you. But then we think about Lord Acton, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. You think about Chuck D, fight the power, all of these notions that people have that power is something that's bad. So let's talk about it as a tool and maybe separate it from all those moral associations, because that's what you do. Yeah, no, I think that is right. Um, you know, the Stanford Business School motto is um, change lives, change organizations, change the world, which I think is a lovely aspirational thing that we try to imbue in our students. But, you know, if you're going to change lives and certainly if you're going to change organizations and change the world, you are going to need power because if change were going to happen without influence, it would have happened already. And so people have stakes in the status quo. Um, people have, um, you know, people, their, their interests are served by the current arrangements, um, you know, to take a striking, but I think interesting and I think relevant example, you can take uh, the civil rights movement and the, um, you know, and the, and the discrimination against African-American uh, people. And you can say, you know, that was bad, which it certainly was. And then you can say, what was it going to take to change that? It was not going to take moral arguments, um, uh, which were going to be insufficient. It was going to take the kind of political power and political organizing that you saw in the civil rights movement with Martin Luther King and the other people who were advocating for and, 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 and actually taking actions consistent with rule two of, you know, break the rules, uh, you know, Rosa Parks refusing to go to the back of the bus, Martin Luther King risking arrest, 
uh, risk, risking arrest. The 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 Woolworths, uh, the lunch counter sit-in uh, people, basically violating laws as well as in violating the rules. And if we if we were going to ever make progress for racial justice, we had to have people um, who were willing, you know, to to, to mobilize power to, mo to and to use that political power to make change. The change wasn't going to occur if it, if if we were just going to sit there. Well, I want to talk with you about uh, those kind of changes, but uh, I'm struck by a quote, and I think it's your quote early on in your new book, Seven Rules of Power, where you say, uh, <laughs> if you want power to be used for good, more good people need to have power. I think that's exactly right. And so one of the things that I see, and you know, I'm, I did an interview for you know Andrew Yang's podcast, and you know he ran for president, and 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 as an Asian American, one of the interesting things that we discussed, and one of the things we discussed when I put him on my podcast, which we'll do later, Pfeffer on Power, is how as an Asian American, as a you know as an as, as an immigrant, he was reluctant to engage in self promotion, he was reluctant to, to engage in personal branding. He had these wonderful ideas about, you know, guaranteed income and all kinds of other ideas, but he was—he did not want to personalize those ideas in the personage of him, and he did not necessarily want to advocate for those ideas using the full range of tactics and techniques that his campaign staff caused him um, eventually to have to do. So, yes... Um, uh, you know, if you want power to be used for good, more good people need power. And I think that goes to the question that you asked, which is why power is associated with evil things. Well, because many of the people who are m most willing to use the strategies and tactics of power are not using it for good. Well, you even in your book uh, mentioned, for example, Jim Jones, and you mentioned Donald Trump, uh, and say that in some ways they really knew how to use power. And this is what I suppose gives people that queasy feeling and that uncomfortable feeling that power is something that would be able to be put in a pejorative or negative category. Uh, and yet you can learn from people like Jim Jones and Donald Trump. That's, I think, what you're saying, isn't it, about power, about establishing power? Yeah, you can learn a lot. You know, I mean, they basically so... So power as a tool, which is not something that a lot of people want to embrace because they think, you know, kind of leadership has a moral component, but leadership also is a broader term can be used for good or for ill. Yeah, Jim Jones, you know, I, the, my autographed copy, which sits on my bookshelf here, was given to me by somebody that you may have known at one point, the late John Jacobs, who was I the did, political yeah. reporter the political reporter for McClatchy and before that for the San Francisco Chronicle. And when he gave me the book, which he finished, he had to finish because Tim Reiterman, who was writing the book originally, was wounded in, in, uh, on, in, in Guyana. You know, the, the quote from uh, the, or the inscription from John Jacobs is, you know, um, he did basically, the book is called Raven, which is the story of Jim Jones. He said, you know, Jim Jones did everything you, you teach. You know, you would be proud of his power tactics. I'm not proud of what Jim Jones did, but he, in fact, did, and I talk about this in Seven Rules of Power, he did, in fact, do exactly the strategies that I would recommend anybody uh, to do. Uh, so you can use the stuff for good, you can use the stuff for ill. It's the same thing as nuclear energy. You can use it for uh, to produce electricity or to produce a death and or to produce death and destruct destruction. So well, I do not I do not think we should confuse. Um, 
the, the means used to accomplish ends with, with, with those ends. You can have malign ends or good ends. You can have bad means or good, good means, and you should not conflate one with the other. Since you mentioned means, uh, Machiavelli comes to mind. Well, you know, as you would know, because you're you're so you're an extraordinarily erudite person. As you know, uh, Robert Cairo wrote the book about the power broker about Robert Moses, and Robert Moses' famous quote is, "If the means don't justify, if the ends don't justify the means, what does?" <laughs> well, it's uh, your position that power is necessary and vital. Um, it can make people feel, I suppose, dirty and underhanded or ruthless. But like you said, it's a tool. And the notion is, how do you use that tool and in what best ways do you use that tool? But first of all, I wanted to bring out a point that you bring out, which is that people who do have power, I mean, it's associated with some negative things, as we've said. I wanted to get that out of the way. But people who do acquire power tend to be healthier, happier, and better overall in their well-being. I mean, so there's a lot to really draw you to the realm of power. I, I think that's right, of course. Um, you know, uh, people with more power uh, tend to, of course, have higher levels of career success. And as with higher levels of career success comes higher salary, which, of course, is associated with health, as we know from the COVID epidemic and the fact that, you know, many of the poorer people in the disadvantaged communities suffered more from COVID than the wealthier people. So yes, that's exactly right. Power is associated with many good things. And so therefore you ought to seek power as if your life depends upon it because it does. And you ought to seek power as if social change depends upon it because it does, which goes back to the point I began at the beginning um, that, that, you know, in order to get things done, um, you probably need power because otherwise change isn't going to happen on its own. Well, I want to talk to you about your rules of power. Um, in fact, uh, one of the rules is to break rules. And uh, let me hone in on that with you just for the moment, because uh, especially now with people losing jobs, uh, tech companies just, well, <laughs> firing people left and right. I have to wonder if it's all that advisable to break the rules because you can certainly draw attention to yourself and become part of the, um, shall we say, damage that's being done in terms of employment. Um, I think so. But, you know, um, as one of my students once pointed out, which I think is right, um, there is a trade-off in finance, which is well recognized, which is the trade-off between risk and return. And I think the trade-off between risk and return applies to people's careers as well. Uh, you know, that if you want to keep, if you want to play it safe, you will probably, you know, have a... Um, a low risk, a lower risk career, but you'll probably also have a lower return career. And so, you know, if if you want to, if you want, if you want to, um, if you want to succeed, you need to do something to stand out. And standing out, of course, always makes you at, at, at some level of risk. Uh, but you know, so I, I'm basically trying to. Certainly, this is true for the people who I teach at Stanford. Um, you know, the, these are people who are who are not looking to play it safe, um, and so you there's a return between risk. Uh, there's a trade-off between risk and return, and I, of course, argue that many people ought to, you know, take that risk, and 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 certainly you want to break the rules. Um, 
There's a, the classic article, which I recommend to everybody, called uh, How David Beats Goliath, uh, written by Malcolm Gladwell, published in The New Yorker. Uh, and how does David beat Goliath? David beats Goliath by breaking the rules. Well, the first rule that you have is um, get out of your own way. Uh, maybe, the, I don't know if these go in order. There's the first rule, like there are those who think the Ten Commandments have no other God before me should be the first and most important, and then it goes from there. But, you know, you've got the first rule is get out of your own way. And what does that mean exactly? Well, that means uh, that means that means many things. First of all, it means lose all the scripts that that um, that in any way disadvantage you, uh, which includes, I think, quite controversially, not thinking of yourself necessarily as a woman or as a uh, man as, as, as a minority my friend Laura Esserman who you probably know is a very powerful woman named by Time magazine uh, one of the most influential people in 2016 a winner of the Arbuckle Award for the outstanding alum from Stanford and when she came to my class once I said to her quite explicitly I said Laura I don't think you often think of yourself or act as a woman when I've seen you in these settings, women aren't supposed to get angry, you get angry. Women aren't supposed to use the F word, you use the F word. Women aren't supposed to swear. And she had an interesting answer. And, she, and, her, and her answer was, people want to put me and other women and many and people of various you know, ethnic and other groups um, in, in a box. And I will not let them define who I am. I will not let them define for me what are appropriate tactics or not. And so I think that's one way in which you get out of your own way. You do not have scripts in your head that say, I can't do this because I'm a, you know, because I'm a woman or because I'm an ethnic minority or because I'm this, that, or the other thing. I am able to, you know, I, 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 can, I can do what everybody else uh, is, is doing. I think another way in which you get out of your own way is, and I can see this again in the case of my friend Laura, who's done all kinds of am amazing things, um, I remember being in a meeting with her and, you know, and the, there was a discussion about, you know, some guy, of course, said, I, you know, I don't like your um, personality and I don't like the way you behave and I don't like this and that and the other thing. And she looked at him and she said, uh, when 45,000 women a year are not dying of breast cancer, we can talk about my personality until then shut and then she used the F word up. And so I think... I think one of the ways in which we get our own in and our own way is people are concerned about what everybody else thinks about them and about winning some popularity contest. Most people in most organizational positions are not hired to be the most liked person in the world. They're hired to get stuff done. And, you know, and oftentimes getting stuff done will ruffle people's feathers. I still remember being on a dean search committee and you know, we talked about our predecessor dean, and the question was, you know, everybody says a nice guy, but the school was dead in the water. And I said, the good news about being dead in the water is that no one can complain about the direction. And but that as soon as you started, somebody would not like, you know, wherever we were going. Your job is not to win a popularity contest, which does not mean you you should be gratuitously difficult, but it means that that as a leader, you are hired. 
you, you're hired to make change, you're hired to get things done, you're hired to accomplish things. As we now know, many people did not actually like, even though there's a national holiday named after him, Martin Luther King, the FBI was wiretapping him, there was all kinds of stuff, there was disagreements within the civil rights movement about tactics. You know, if you're gonna make change, you're not gonna make everybody happy, so that's another, that's, you need to get, lose the scripts that hold you back, lose, the, um, you know, lose this idea that you're winning a popularity contest and lose the apprehensions or the inhibitions. You know, I watched, I had the privilege of watching, I happened to be in Cabo at the time uh, with a friend, but I had the privilege of watching um, Argentina win the World Cup. And if you watch the World Cup on a big screen TV, what you see is that these people are playing tough. They're, they're, this is a much more physical game um, than, than I expected. And, you know, and, and and people are drawing fouls and they are falling down when people barely touch them and they are doing whatever it takes to win. And I don't think they are necessarily parsing, you know, every issue of sportsmanship and fair play. They are doing what it takes to win. And, and you see this in business as well. The question is, are you willing to do what your competitors are doing? And if you're not, then you need to maybe understand the consequences of that. So I think... Get out of your own way by losing scripts that hold you back, not thinking of yourself in any disadvantaged way. Number two, um, you know, uh, not, uh, you know, basically, basically being, will, being willing to do what it takes. And number three, not worrying about what everybody else is thinking about you. They're not thinking about you. They're thinking mostly about themselves. We've got some questions coming in. I want to go to them, but you've been talking about leadership and power, and the two are very connected. What do you say to the argument? I'm sure you've heard it through the years. Uh, power ought to be based, and leadership ought to be based on cooperation, on working as a team, and on maybe even uh, uh, lessening one's self-interest. Uh, well, you used the world's most important word, should. Many things should, you know, neither you nor I should be our age and bald because we are much, we have much too much talent to, to be old and bald. We should be young and vital, you know, the things, there are many things that should be. You have a way and we can the, get more hair, Jeff? Yeah. <laughs> if you so, do, I'd like to know, you know off the I mean, record. What, what, one, of the, one of the things that, um, so should is a word that I try not to use very much in, in the class. My class is not a class on ethics. Uh, you know, I'm not a moral philosopher. I am trying to teach people not only how the world works, but why the world works that way, which goes back to the quote, if you want power to be used for good, more good people need power. There are many things that should be. Uh, you know, um, Elon Musk should probably not be the richest man in the world. He should certainly not do things that have, you know, probably on the way to destroying Twitter and certainly without question on the way to firing a lot of Twitter employees and making their lives worse. Um, you know, so, you know, maybe Mark Zuckerberg should not have the power he has and Facebook, uh, or now I guess it's called Meta, should not do what it does with respect to con uh, you know to uh, content moderation and we should not have all these um, 
you know, false things going around and we should not have all there's a bunch of things that should not be going on. If you want to change any of those, you need power. You want to you want to change the operation of Meta? We can, you know, have interesting discussions and virtue signaling or you can figure out how to bring power to bear to 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 to, to change what Meta does. You want to change Elon Musk's behavior, you want to change Uber's behavior with under Travis Kalanick, you need to figure out how to bring power uh, to bear. It's interesting. Uh, one more thing and then I'll let you continue. Um, I got an email the other day and I won't name who it's from, but I'll name the organization. Um, the email says to me, lovely email, begins with, I understand you're the expert on power. I am part of the organization that recalled the San Francisco school board. We're not finished because the school board is only part of the problem with the city of San Francisco, which is a completely corrupt and dysfunctional city, which I, which I, you know, the building department and what's going on there, I think makes that statement relatively true. And the woman who sends me this says, I would like to meet with you because I want to, I want to learn from you to the extent possible, what we're going to do, because we want to fix the rest of the city of San Francisco, having now recalled the school board, which frankly was more interested in renaming the schools than and they weren't operating them. So yes, we knew, I am like, we're gonna have coffee and we're gonna have fun. Since you mentioned Zuckerberg and Musk, uh, and we have a lot of people who listen to us uh, who are in the world of technology, um, seems counterintuitive, but I think you've said that um, power has been more consolidated. That is, one would assume that maybe with the internet and with social media, power would be, or the dynamic of power would be more disseminated, more spread out, something along those lines. But that's that's not your position. It's become more consolidated and in some ways uh, more maybe <laughs> powerful than it's been in the past. Oh, that's for sure. I mean, you know, that's not just my position. That's the position of the European Commission. That's the position now of the Federal Trade Commission. You know, which is fighting the merger of uh, Microsoft with Activision, and of trying to find a merger of Meta with another, um, with another relatively small at the moment technology company. I mean, all you need to do is look at the airline industry, the telecommunications airline, the telecommunications industry, the cell phone industry. Um, you know, the, the United States Department of Justice spent a long time breaking up AT and T, and then let AT and T essentially reassemble. So anybody who doesn't like their cell phone service, who I suspect is everybody, people who don't like their cable service or think they're paying too much for cable, they need to understand that this is a symptom of the reconsolidation uh, and the fact that the U.S. under both Democratic and Republic, uh, Republican administrations haven't enforced antitrust laws. You want to know why drug prices are high? Look at all the drug mergers. So yes, there is, there's, uh, people have finally woken up, it's a little late, uh, to the fact that there has been enormous economic consolidation in an enormous, uh, enormous number of industries, airlines, cell phones, telecommunications, the internet, etc. Yes, in theory, there are many internet uh, providers and their merit, and in theory, you can use um, DuckDuckGo or whatever. But in fact, Google controls—I don't know—80, 90 percent of of search. And the internet was supposed to give what Huey Newton used to call power to the people. It didn't actually necessarily deliver, not in that way. Uh, we're going to. Well, some... well, it actually did give power to the people. It's just relatively few people. <laughs> yeah, a few people. Here's uh, Laura from Beaumont who wants to know. 
How does being perceived as different, i.e. cultural disabilities, affect a person's <laughs> ability to be taken seriously? Um, well, every, everybody has elements of uh, difference and everybody has elements of similarity. And similarity is the most powerful basis of interpersonal attraction. And so what I tell my students and what the students actually figure out is how to build a bond with people whose help and support they need. And there is always a way to build a bond. You can do it on the basis of racial or demographic or age similarity, or you can do it on the basis of shared experiences. And if you haven't had shared experiences, you can figure out experiences that, in fact, bring people together. So my friend John Levy, who you may or may not have had on your show, who wrote this fabulous book called You're Invited, He's, he runs these influencer dinners. Uh, I highly recommend the book, You're Invited. It talks about how to put on these um, experiences that bring people People together. Keith Ferrazzi, who I'm sure you know, who wrote the book Never Eat Alone, also does dinner parties. So there are ways. So if I say there's a bunch of people who look different from me and maybe have different backgrounds from me, how do I how do I build bonds with them? Um, are there ways in which we can play sports together? Are there ways in which we can do dinners together? Are there, are there ways in which we can volunteer on common activities, which many companies now do with these, um, you know, Habitat for Humanity or building things or cleaning up the beaches, whatever. In other words, can I do something uh, to, to, to make people who are in some sense dissimilar from me seem more similar through shared experiences? Frankly, that's what Stanford University and Stanford Business School does. I mean, you know, we, we take diverse people from countries literally all over the world and they come to the Stanford Business School and they and they go on field trips together and they do classes together and they do and they go to parties together. And at the end of this, the similarities are more important than the differences. Transactional behavior is important in all this, too, isn't it? I mean, in other words, you're providing something maybe in the way of a favor or kindness or just good listening to someone and building a bond and making a connection and rapport. Absolutely. Doing favors for people, of course, providing help to them. I think many people think that take networking as having, you know, a bad name. Um, but networking is actually oftentimes just the opportunity to introduce people to other people who could be helpful to them. And basically in making that link, bring people together who can be helpful to each other. It's one of your rules. Network relentlessly, in fact, is what you say. Um, That's right. Here's uh, Roscoe from Brea, California, who wants to know, how can recognition of one's own power help or hinder relationships between people of different power status? Um, you know, I think people... Um... I think people need to, I guess this is partly of rule one, which is I do which I do think is the most important rule. Many people I think are uncomfortable with power. When my friend Deb Grunfeld wrote her book Acting with Power and she teaches a class called Acting with Power. Um, you know, I think one of the things she talks about is getting comfortable with your power. Um, 
you know, and uh, my friend Dev Liu, who now runs Ancestry, used to work for Facebook, um, is the CEO of Ancestry. She wrote a book called Take Back Your Power and, and, and basically talks about the importance of leaning into the power that you have and using it. And she uses in her book, and when she comes to my class, and I use it in my book, uh, two examples of products that she ran at Facebook. And the first product, they were both about equally important. They each accounted for about 15% of Facebook's revenue. And the first time, she did not take credit, and she did not, you know, basically um, self-promote uh, her and, and what her team did, as a consequence of which her team got no credit. She didn't get much credit, and almost everybody on the team left. And so she learned her lesson for the second product um, she, she told a narrative and told a narrative consistently, and, and therefore it became part of the, if you will, Facebook lore, and, and she did get credit, and, and, and her career accelerated as a consequence of that. But not only did her career accelerate, but the people whose career she was responsible for also accelerated. And so this is not just an issue of selfishness. This is an issue of if you want, if you want your power uh, to help the people who work with and for you, uh, you need you you need to lean into your power and not engage in all this um, false modesty and self-effacement. Here's Mike Edwards from Brooklyn, New York, who says, "Hey Jeffrey, giving you had the power, what would you say is the top three influential actions that the world needs now?" There's a big question. Wow, that is a big question. Fortunately, I have no power since I'm just a poor Stanford professor. But um, I would say. Um, the the biggest problem I think the world faces is 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 conflict. Uh, obviously, the conflict in Ukraine, uh, but also conflict. Uh, there's a lot of wars going on around the world. There's conflict in China. There's conflict, you know, and and there's conflict obviously in the United States. We have lost. I'm not sure we ever had, uh, but 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 certainly people. Um, um, are, are, are disagreeing in ways that are not only disagreeing, but also, in fact, disagreeable. I think we need, and I don't know how to do it, I think we need a, we need a much more accepting world in which people can, in fact, have differences of opinion without fighting and killing each other, uh, literally or metaphorically. I think we need, we, we need a world that... Uh, uh, that is much more evidence-based and is much more, and I wrote a book on that, as you know, on evidence-based management, uh, that, is, that is much more based on fact and less on opinion. Um, you know, I would say those are the two things. Having people be able to get along better, even with people they disagree with, or maybe particularly with people they disagree with, and, and building a world in which um, evidence and science plays a larger role. That's... Uh... I think good focusing. Thank you for that response. And thank you for the question to Mike uh, from Brooklyn. Uh, let me get us back to the whole problem that we face uh, with it, trying to find a more equitable society. And you mentioned, um, well, actually in your book, you talk about a number of people of color and women and so forth who were able to move up in organizations, were able to acquire power and yet there are many who say the system is against them. Uh, it's tougher. I mean, Rosa Parks is a wonderful example, but, you know, a very unusual example in many ways. Um, there were many people who went along with Rosa Parks uh, and did things. She got, 
I had the privilege of interviewing her many years ago, but she got a lot of the uh, a lot of the glory and deservedly so. But there were many people who worked in much more difficult and more trying ways and just refusing to sit down on the bus um, or sit in the back of the bus. I'm just wondering what you think about, you know, people of color or people of lower social class or, or women, how they can make it in a system that seems, even from their perspective, to be designed against them. So I will give you a response that will not make me popular, but it is, in fact, I think, true. Um, the, there, are, there are enormous amounts remaining of uh, implicit bias uh, on the Pfeffer and Power podcast. I have an interview with Darren Dodson, who's made it his life work uh, to change the implicit bias that uh, occurs in money management. As many people know, of the $69 trillion, and that's a number that comes off the top of my head, so it's not probably 100% accurate, it's basically accurate. Of the $69 trillion of investable assets in this world, less than 2% are run by women or people of color. And so there are two things you can do. And you can, uh, you can uh, maybe you can do both simultaneously. You can say, well, the system is unfair, which it, by the way, is. Uh, but uh, but that doesn't really do very much good. I, there's a world of, you know, uh, let me back up. After the Parkland, the Marjorie Douglas uh, Stoneman high school shooting, I actually got a call from one of the student leaders and he said, I understand you're an expert on power. Uh, we need to do something about gun laws in the United States. He, he said, do you have any advice for me? I said, I have a lot of advice for you. And my advice for you is that the demonstrations are interesting. And, you know, and the speeches are interesting. On the day that Senator Marco Rubio loses his Senate seat because of his position on gun control, things will change. Basically, you know, the virtue signaling, the op-eds, even appearing with the famous Michael Krasny will do only so much. At the end of the at, at the end of the world, you want to change world, you 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 need to get down and 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 do essentially what my hero does. My hero happens to be Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams understood that if you were going to change politics in the state of Georgia, it was going to take time and effort, and you had to you didn't have to you know do these goofy ads, you actually had to register people. You had to get get people of color and underrepresented uh, young people, whatever. You had to get people registered. You had to get them to the polls. But in order to get them to the polls and have them able to vote, you had to actually register them. You had to build an infrastructure. And I will say something else, which I've said a thousand times and which makes me very unpopular. You know, Barack Obama, God bless him, was one of the persons who actually inadvertently destroyed the Democratic Party because there were 1,000 fewer people in positions in his legislatures and in school boards, maybe more than 1,000 at the end of his term than there was in the beginning. That, you know, that, that, that life and change is about figuring out whether where the levers of power are and using those levers. And that means voting and that means registering and that means organizing and that means doing all the hard work that people would rather not do. They would rather, you know, write op-eds or make wonderful pronouncements or march. Marching is fine. At the end of the day, you want to do something you need to change the people who have their hands on the levers of power if you want anything to be different. 
Well, you give an example in your book of um, one of your students, an African-American woman who really did change things and who moved up to a high position of power. Maybe you could give us a little sense of what that was and why you use it as an example. Um, well, I use a number of African-American examples. Are you think of Rukiah Adams? Is that who you're Well, thinking? I'm thinking of Talia Jones early on in the book, uh, who you write about. But uh, yeah, Rukiah Adams is a good example, too. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, Rukiah, I still I know her. She still comes to my class. God bless her. She's a fabulous human being. She used to run, just stepped down from running the Meyer Memorial Trust. At one point, she was on the board that oversaw the $100 billion in pension assets in the state of Oregon. Um, she graduated from law school, Stanford, and had a very distinguished legal career, then came back to get an MBA, graduated in 2008 in the middle of the recession, found it difficult to get a job, did finally uh, get a job in the investment world and found that uh, as, a, as an outsider, as somebody who was perceived not as a threat because she looked so different, um, that she was able... Um, that people would tell her things that they wouldn't tell anybody else because they didn't perceive her as having power or, uh, or being very threatening. And at the end, of course, the the fact that everybody told her stuff made, gave her a lot of power because she knew more than what was going on in these companies and in these firms than anybody else. Um, so, uh, yes, um, she would be an example. Um, I, th I think, you know, the point that I was trying to make with my earlier comment is that the only persons, the only person whose behavior you actually have a modest chance of controlling is your own. And so, is you know, I can complain about what goes on here and there, and that's fine. But but the, but change begins with what you do, and with and with the power you are able to muster and the power you are able to build. So my friend, who is who, and she is a good friend, Laura Esserman, who's trying to change medicine. You know, she can complain about many things about medicine, which is of course all true. But at, the, but at the at the end of the day, the only thing that she can actually do anything about is her own behavior. She's built this amazing nonprofit. She's built a coalition of people to run interesting forms of clinical trials. She's built, uh, you know, uh, an organization that now collects uh, data on 100,000 women. It's called the Wisdom Trial. She's built a bunch of stuff. And so in addition to complaining about and trying to lead social change, she's organized the Boycott Against Texas, where they run these ASCO, American Society for Clinical Oncology meetings, because she does not like Texas's position on abortion. So yes, she organizes about that, but she also gets out and does stuff. And what I said to my friend from Marjorie uh, Stoneman Douglas uh, you know, High School is that if he was and his friends were wanted to do anything about the slaughter that occurs in schools, um, you know, the, at the end of the day, they had to organize and change the political consequences for people who refused to do anything about about keeping guns out of the hands of nuts. We share admiration for Laura Esserman, who I have had the privilege of working with, full disclosure there, on a number of occasions, not only as an interviewer, but actually with her Wisdom Project. Let me go to some more questions. Uh, John in Houston says, how do I, big question again, Jeff, how do I balance the use of personal power with humility and respect for others? Well, you know, I'm a social scientist. Um, 
I have done a lot of studies recently with my friend Charles O'Reilly on narcissism. And, you know, we can ask why this is, but it turns out narcissism, which is the opposite of humility, at least one dimension of the opposite of humility, narcissism is reliably associated with um, ascending to leadership positions, uh, getting hired. And by the way, this is true in, the, in getting promoted. This is true, by the way, even in the military. Um, so... Um, you know, we can ask why that is, and I think there's a bunch of answers for that. So when Donald Trump began running, I wrote, at that time I was still writing for Fortune because Fortune was still paying me. Now nobody pays for anything, um, but that's okay. In any event, I wrote a column, which is why I said, and I did the column many people thought was like prescient. I didn't think it was prescient. I thought it was common sense that Donald Trump had the qualities that we said we did not want in leaders, but systematically hired for and elected for, both in politics, but also in um, but also in, in private industry. So we say we want modesty. Is Elon Musk modest? Is Jeff Bezos modest? Was Steve Jobs modest? You know, I could go down a long, long list, both of men and of women, who I would think would be the opposite of modesty. So this goes back to the word that you use, and it's a powerful word, and it's the word should. We, there are many things that should be the first thing you need to do is figure out how the world works and why it works that way. And then at that point, you can choose and you can say, well, you know, I understand the things that determine who exceeds the leadership positions. I can adopt that knowledge or I can run away from that knowledge. But until I'm in a position of power, I probably can't change how the world works. Leaders should be truthful. Leaders should be honest. I mean, we can just go through the list there, but and your seven rules and seven is that number it goes back to Stephen Covey, I think, the idea of seven rules of success because you can process seven things better than you can eight or nine or 10 especially, um, and things will stay with you. Plus you think about seven C's and all and of the- And the seven wonders of the world. Seven wonders of the world, exactly. So many things with seven sins and uh, all of that. <laughs> um, but you get to the final one and you say, once you get the power, what you did to get it can be forgotten. And boy, that weighs heavily uh, on the moral imagination. But uh, flesh that out a little bit for us, if you would. Well, it's unfortunately true. I mean, you know, um, it, is, it, is, it is actually a documented fact that Bill Gates uh, stole the code on which Microsoft was originally built. Nobody cares. It is a documented fact that Jeffrey Epstein, not that I'm arguing that you ought to steal code or be a sex offender, uh, after, after his first conviction, um, but before uh, a reporter actually brought all of this to light, uh, was consorting with not only the royal family, which is kind of well known, but many prominent people in the United States, uh, including people in the media. Um, you know, uh, uh, Steve Jobs was accused, I think correctly, of backdating stock options. Larry Ellison was sanctioned, of, of Oracle was sanctioned by the Securities and Exchange Commission for ignoring or actually inflating sales figures. Uh, Martha Stewart went to jail. Um, and by the way, has a brand which has now been and never worth more. Uh, Michael Milken went to jail, uh, was introduced. I'm watching the Oakland A's one day, probably one of the three people who do. And, uh, and there's Michael Milken introduced in the broadcast booth. 
as a philanthropist, which of course he is. Um, he paid a huge fine, but then went to and served some time in jail. But he also is a philanthropist and supports charitable causes. There are a zillion examples of people who have. Um, not always been the, the the nicest people. There's David Geffen Hall at Lincoln Center. There's a biography out and a bunch of biographies of David Geffen, not the sweetest and nicest human being in the world. Steve Schwartzman, the same, etc. And one of the things I talk about in that chapter is how if you have enough money, you can basically buy respectability by going to the Aspen Institute, this wonderfully moral organization and giving rooms named after your name or giving auditoriums named after you or name or going to Stanford University and giving, you know, buildings and names and urinals and everything else named after you so that you pr you purchase legitimacy with, with the money that you've gotten. And many people do not look very hard, uh, you know, at the, at, at the source of that money. So for a variety of dynamics. Um, Didn't work for the Sackler family, though, did it? <laughs> Yes, of course. The sad, yes, the Sacklers. The Sacklers had the interesting. The Sacklers are interesting because they actually are having their names taken off of stuff. Exactly. But but exactly. but they are, I think, the exception that proves the rule. Well, Robert from Los Angeles wants to know: How do you recommend using your power to bridge personalities that don't get along? To what? To bridge to bridge personalities that don't get along. In other words. Can you use power to sort of bring people together, particularly of when course. there's enmity or rancor or simply? Of course. Uh, of course. I, I think one of the ways in which you use power uh, to bring people together is you create events that are pleasant and wonderful and that are, you know, and that are filled with good food and, you know, and good and, and good music and good whatever, good art or whatever. And then you bring people together. And it turns out that if people um, are having fun together, uh, they are more likely to... Um, you know, to, uh, to, get, to get along. And you can, of course, use your power to force people into contact with each other. Um, we know, I think, that contact often will, uh, will, will help moderate views because, um, because it's easier to have a stereotypical view of someone and a stereotypical view of their positions if I don't actually have to interact or talk with them. So there are many ways in which you can use your power uh, to create settings and to bring people together in ways that um, foster collaboration and cooperation. I'm going to go to another question about uh, how is power different than authority? Are they interchangeable? Uh, no, Th authority is formal power. So authority, authority says, you know, I've made you CEO or COO or CMO or any of the other Cs. Um, it, 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 authority is about position in a hierarchy. Power is about um, the informal power that you can accumulate through networking as a perfect example. I have known for since 1981 when I met him when I visited at Harvard Business School. Jeffrey Sonnenfeld. Jeffrey Sonnenfeld has created, and he came to a celebration of my career, and I know him, I love him. Jeffrey Sonnenfeld has essentially no formal power. He's a full professor at Yale, but he, and he runs the Chief Executive Leadership Institute. But in terms of formal power, he has almost none. But he has used his position at Yale, and he's used his links to a bunch of CEOs to do two amazing things. Number one, when Donald Trump 
tried to um, deny the results of Joe Biden's election. He brought um, executives together and in a way that tried to ensure that the election results would not be overturned. And even more prominently, as you know, he now runs this list of companies that do not leave the Soviet Union and continue, pardon me, Russia, and continue to operate there. And that publicity has caused companies to, to leave Russia uh, and to stop doing business there and to stop so supporting what is, is essentially uh, you know, a, a very corrupt and very illegitimate regime. And he has done that with essentially no formal power. He is not the Secretary of State. He has not been elected to any of these jobs. I think it is a perfect example of how you can use networks of relationships, which is basically what he has built with this Chief Executive Leadership Institute over many years. You can use those relationships and you can use your position as a Yale academic and you can use the resources that are available to you to compile lists and to do research. And he has used that rather than formal authority uh, to make an enormous change in business conduct. So social capital really plays a central role. That's not what you're saying? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also, I'm struck by the fact that there, there's the old cliche that there's one American philosophy and it's pragmatism. A lot of what you're saying is very pragmatic just from any perspective of pragmatism, going back to Dewey and all the rest. That's absolutely correct. I am an extraordinarily pragmatic person uh, because I am more interested in... Um, in seeing things change than I am in seeing people, you know, uh, to take, uh, take, in quotes, moral positions. At the end of the day, it's fine to have a moral position, but at the end, you know, but if that moral position, it doesn't do anything and nothing changes, then, you know, I, I think if you look at the, at the, if you look at Stacey Abrams, if you look at Martin Luther King, if you look at certainly, um, you know, Nelson Mandela, uh, there's a biographies of Nelson Mandela that talk about how over time, at one point he was a communist, at one point he was a capitalist, at one point he was, at one point he was in favor of violence, at one point he was in favor of nonviolence. I think Nelson Mandela, who was fundamentally interested in you know, changing a system of apartheid, was extraordinarily pragmatic. I think Martin Luther King was extraordinarily pragmatic. You know, are we going to? Uh, what do we need to do? How are we? How are we? Going to get the Voting Rights Act passed? Are we going to march or are we not going to march? What are the what kinds of positions do we need to change? Who do we need to bring into the coalition? Who who do we need to make a deal with? I think Lyndon Johnson, who passed more civil rights bills than anybody before, probably since, was extraordinarily pragmatic. I think pragmatism is extraordinarily useful. At the end of the day, what matters is not what everybody says, but what they do. As a matter of fact, Bob Sutton and I, my dear friends, Bob, and I wrote a book uh, called uh, The Knowing Doing Gap. We, and one of these things that we talk about is, you know, the smart talk trap where people say smart things or moral things. At the end of the day, the question is, what, what have you accomplished? What, 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 what has changed as a consequence of what you've done? So change is in some ways the touchstone to determining what power can bring about, what it can turn? 
change in change in organizational performance absolutely at the end of the day what are you able to get done you know who are you able to hire you know what are you able to build what are you able to create what are the businesses that you're able to create my friend jason calacanis is not everybody's most popular person but he's he runs his this week in startups podcast you know when he talked about travis kalanick who he defended uh, which I not wouldn't necessarily, but he said, you know, he said, how many people actually build a company the size of Uber? And and that is not the only test, but it's certainly one test, you know. And I think it is um, George Bernard Shaw. You will be able to quote this better than me in the uh, introduction to Man and Superman, uh, which was um, quoted in the um, Power Broker as well by Robert Moses, that it's not the critic who counts, uh, that at the end of the day, it is the person who's in the arena, who's actually able to do something. And that Robert Moses is also famous for the quote, those who can build, those who can't criticize. <laughs> Reminds me of those who do uh, can and those who can't teach. That's the old uh, line. I think Gore Vidal used to use that a lot. Uh, uh, he was, uh, in fact, Robert Moses was really known as a master builder with many good reasons. He was a master builder. Um, sure. We've got a question from Juan in Mexico City. Juan Robles wants to know, how do you affect respectability or lack of it in the search for power? Where does respectability come in? Well, I think, you know, that, that goes to rule seven. You know, once you have power, you will become respectable. Because everything will, you know, because because people will align things because people believe that the world is a just and fair place. And so therefore, if you have power, you must you must deserve it and you must earn it. So are you and, and you must. Uh, you, so therefore, we're going to exceed. Excuse me, uh, Jeffrey, does that include Putin? Does that include people like that? I mean, maybe from the Russians perspective, but. Uh... Well, you know, it depends upon, you know, it depends upon what he does and. If he wins, you know, if, 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 if he were winning the war in Ukraine, there would probably be a very different narrative uh, than, than what there is. What is the saying? You would know this. I mean, you, Michael, you are way more erudite than I am. But there's a saying um, that uh, those who win get to write history. Um, uh, I think Safi Bacall, who's a friend of mine who wrote the book Loon Shots, has a slightly different twist on that. He says those who, uh, those who win get to not only write history, they get to make history. So, uh, you know, I, uh, that, and that comes, and, and if you take that statement at its root, that is, that is, is at the core, an extraordinarily pragmatic statement. So, yes, I am, I am a pragmatist. And here is... Um... Roscoe from Madison, Indiana. Joseph Nye of Harvard, he writes, says that during the information age, credibility is the scarcest resource. How does one gain credibility and does that equate to gaining power? Um, I think I think I would turn it around. Credibility doesn't give you power. Power gives you credibility. Yeah. I mean, Elon. So, and and I think the perfect example is Twitter. Elon Musk did a bunch of stuff when he took over Twitter that any rational human being would say was stupid, uh, including firing half of the people, and including, by the way, firing their salespeople and and doing a bunch of things that upset their customers. Which none of which, by the way, makes sense if you're trying to you know run a run a viable business. But everybody said if Musk does a did, did it, Musk is a genius. It must be smart. So, so power provides credibility. Credibility doesn't provide power. What about what Musk did with uh, having a poll to whether or not he should stay? And he lost that poll and ultimately said he would resign and he did. 
Yeah, I guess he's he he may, he may he may still resign, but it doesn't matter because Twitter's Twitter I think is finished. He's he's now done. You know, it's like you take a plane, and if you you know you do enough destruction to the engines and the fuselage and everything else, the plane is not going to stay up. Twitter, by the way, provides a service that is. This is not the cure for cancer. There is no patent protection that protects Twitter and its position. This is a purely a network effect, and everybody is now after Twitter, um, and they're pissing off their customers and they're pissing off their advertisers. And at the end of the day. Twitter, to, I would not. And also, of course, they've loaded Twitter up with $13 billion of debt. It's going to be interesting. Well, we're coming near the close here, Jeffrey. Um, let me just ask you, how do you know when you acquire power? How do you assess the sense that you're there, you've made it, you have actually an acquisition of power? Um, people treat you as though you're powerful. So it's all on the basis of how you're treated by others or perceived by others? It, I, th I think perception perception is a, a much more important basis of reality than people think. You know, everybody thinks, you know, Apple's phone is the coolest thing in the world. And in some respects it is. And in some respects it probably doesn't justify the price premium. But if everybody thinks it is and everybody's going to line up in an Apple store. So the, Steve Jobs understood the importance of perception. And, and the better maybe, maybe this Regis McKenna more than Steve Jobs. But they understood that perception is reality. I mean, when Donald Trump became seen as a viable candidate, he became a viable candidate. Had he never been seen as a viable candidate, he never would have been. I wonder if this gets back to an old line of Kurt Vonnegut's, you are who you pretend to be. Donald Trump pretended to be someone of great stature and uh, someone worthy of the highest office in the land and maybe the most powerful position in the world, and therefore he became that? That's, I think, correct. You know, you. He, by the way, he 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 pretended to be rich and successful, and and he was then able to do something which has not become a real estate developer or a casino developer, in which he was not very good, but but in fact, sell his name. And you know, it's it's much better. You know, I could have try to build a hotel and operate a hotel. That actually requires work. Selling my name is much easier. Well, that's the branding you talk about in your Seven Rules of Power, but. Trump University somehow didn't quite make it in terms of branding, and neither did those stakes that he uh, put his name on and so many other things that he's put his name on, and yet the name remains a very powerful brand name. That's correct. And he's and because he remains a political candidate, um, which is one of the reasons why I think he actually has to run for president. He has enormous legal bills and the uh, and he can do a GoFundMe campaign, which probably isn't going to work, or he can run for office. And as long as he's running for office, the money will pour in. Well, he also wants to stay out of jail like Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel. It's somewhat comparable, I think, isn't it? Analogous, probably, but but mostly he needs to pay his legal bills, and as long as he's got everybody else paying his legal bills, he doesn't have to. Well, always a pleasure to talk to you, and we always learn from you. And I thank you so much for being with us, and many thanks, uh, not only for being with us to those of you who sent questions in, but those of you who have been listening to this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. And an important reminder to find out more about us and join our ever-growing membership: uh, simply go to graymatter.show. And uh, let me actually uh, ask you, please, to tell those you know about us as well and thank all of you who were with us for this live broadcast and all who will be hearing this broadcast in the days or weeks ahead. Thanks to Alex, Shannon, Colin, 
Chad and Kevin and bountiful thanks to today's special guest, Professor Jeffrey Pfeffer. For all of us, I'm Michael Krasny. Thank you. Bye. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.